Matt was just telling me that when he presides and I preach, usually we could uh, set a record time for a shortest worship service. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how it goes today. Um, good morning. Uh, it's great to worship with you all again. My name is Joshua, um, and I'll be bringing you the word today. Uh, we're continuing our series in First Timothy, and now we come to the third chapter. So let me read from 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 16, and then chapter 6, verse 6. I'll be referring to other verses in chapter 6, but for now, I'll highlight that one verse. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, hear the word of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Um, dear God, what does it mean to look like you? Um, teach us, not only those who are in particular offices, but all of us as followers of your faithful Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, context matters. Uh, one of my favorite memes is a video taken by a woman at a zoo. Uh, she's at the gorilla habitat with her children. And, of course, they're looking at the animals from behind the glass. Uh, now, at one point, two large silverback gorillas get into an aggressive tussle. Uh, they start wrestling and pushing each other, grunting and tumbling around. And the woman gets startled 
And she yells emotionally, no, 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 oh man, where's the zookeepers? Where's the zookeepers? And that video went viral. You could search it uh, on YouTube. It's called, Where's the Zookeepers? And the first time I saw it, I was on the floor laughing. Uh, see, see, in this woman's mind, there was a total confusion of context. For some reason, she didn't register that this was a zoo. Uh, that these were animals in a highly protected environment and that these animals were gorillas, behaving like gorillas. Um, Instead, she acted as if this was a school fight or altercation and she needed to call the principal. If she had all the proper assumptions, she would have reacted differently and of course that meme uh, wouldn't exist. So I'm glad she was thinking that way. Uh, The way we interpret data in any circumstance always involves context, and that includes the Bible. Uh, You might have heard something called proof texting. Um, Proof texts are verses in the Bible that people cherry-pick to serve a particular purpose uh, without considering what the whole passage is about. For example, in Matthew 18, there's a verse where Jesus says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Uh, and oftentimes people would take that and say, oh, as long as we have at least two people here at church, Jesus is going to join us. Uh, but if you look at that section as a whole, Jesus is talking about confrontation and how sometimes if, if a one-on-one conflict isn't resolved, you may need two or three witnesses to help bring unity. Um, and he's saying when people are gathered to pursue that unity, his spirit will be there to help them. That's a very different meaning, and to isolate that one verse would be to pull a proof text. So professors would often say, a text without a context is a pretext to a proof text. Uh, The reason I started with that is that today's passage is so often misread. On the surface, Paul's talking about the qualifications for overseers and deacons in the church. And so often we read this as a checklist or a a list of requirements for office, some kind of spiritual exam. But this passage happens within the flow of argument in uh, 1 Timothy. And not only that, it happens at a particular time in church history. And of course, as we've been talking about, it happens within the Ephesian culture. So all these things need to inform our reading as we study what this is all about today. Uh, Well, here's the main idea for the sermon, and then we'll break it down into three points as always. The mystery of godliness is that in Christ, being like him leads to contentment rather than duty. Um, The mystery of godliness is that in Christ, being like him leads to contentment rather than duty. Uh, Three points. Number one, the character of godliness Uh, Number two, the calling of godliness. And number three, the contentment of godliness. Um, First, the character of godliness. So what's the flow of argument we've seen so far in the book? Um, In short, Paul's reminding Timothy to lead people in a lifestyle that reflects Jesus in order to resist the distractions creeping into the Ephesian church at that time. That's why after Norman opened us up with the initial greeting in the first couple verses, we saw that Paul went straight into critiquing false teachers, if you remember that. Um, See, see, in a lot of his letters to churches, Paul would begin with, I thank God for you, or I've been praying for you. But sometimes he goes straight to, what's wrong with you guys? 
And that's closer to the feeling in this book because uh, as we've been saying, he's concerned about some people, even leaders, falling into false doctrines and false ways of life influencing the church. So he urges Timothy to correct the church with love. And last week, Norman talked about growing in maturity with prayer. Today's passage is along those same lines. He's not randomly inserting a checklist for overseers and deacons. No, he's saying in the context where Ephesian leaders are teaching the wrong things and living corrupt lifestyles, let's promote a leadership that brings healing and order to God's people in Christ. Uh, Now in chapter 6, Paul lists the behavior of some of the false teachers coming into the church. Uh, They were puffed up with arrogance, um, believing that they had enlightenment. And of course, that's related to the Gnostic heresy that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, They had these cravings for debate and demolishing people with words. Uh, They loved controversy, which produced envy and suspicion and slander in the community. And they loved money. And and more than that, Greco-Roman culture had a trend of infidelity um, and sexual promiscuity and denying family responsibilities. That was the the whole atmosphere. Um, And so we have to look at Paul's love for the church as kind of like a parental love. If your child is in a public school environment, with a lot of negativity. One of the ways you might choose to love that child is to teach them why that negativity is so harmful and how to respond to it in a healthy way. And that's why he lists a description for overseers and deacons in the church. Paul wants to remind God's people that they're meant for more than this world. No matter how tempting it might be to conform to it, they're meant to look like Jesus. Well, a couple details I want to highlight here. The overseer is the same thing as elder, okay? The roles of elder and deacon are not really defined here. Uh, The the only thing that's clear is that the elder is supposed to be someone who cares for the church in a ruling position and teaches. Uh, That's why it says it's a noble task. And deacons are those who serve, dispersing the funds for the poor or doing visitations. But the reason Paul doesn't give details about the duties of elders and deacons or technical things like that is that Paul's not answering that question in this case. Um, He's more concerned about one general thing, and that's mature Christian character. That's the point he's trying to bring out. Whether you're an elder or a deacon, Paul's saying against the corrupt behavior that's been going on, you have to follow Jesus in mature living. so, so, so again, it's not an official checklist of requirements. If it were, if you were doing that, I would be disqualified uh, because I don't have kids. Um, Paul and Timothy would be disqualified because they're not married. Uh, no, no, he's painting a broad picture of the kind of leader he's looking for in the church in contrast with the world. See, Paul could have written a different list um, with other traits, but the main idea would have been the same, which is what kind of person Um, will stand up as a witness in the culture. So we won't go through every piece, but for example, in verse 2 it says, an overseer must be above reproach. Um, This is in response to people who are bringing a bad reputation and blame to the church because of their behavior. Um, So Paul is saying, no, you've got to be above that. And he's not saying you're supposed to be sinless. He even says he's the chief of sinners in chapter 1. But what he's saying is, 
when the world looks at this person uh, who's supposed to be a leader, they should notice that Jesus is good and not be turned away from Jesus so that the gospel can uh, spread fruitfully. It's the same thing with deacons being blameless. In each of these traits, he wants an apologetic, a defense against the corruption of the world and uh, show the world that the gospel, that Jesus is good. Um, now, of course, being an elder and deacon are specific callings. Uh, not everyone here is an elder or deacon, but I want to go to verse 15 real quick because Paul broadens this out. He says, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The household of God includes every single person in this room right, who, who follows Jesus. See, being called to a role is one thing, but as Christians, we're all called to be godly, above reproach, self-controlled, gentle, faithful, and all that. See, a lot of times as Christians, we think character is a face. We put on a face to ourselves and to other people. We, we say to ourselves, as long as I'm praying or attending church or serving or teaching my kids the Bible, I feel better. Um, as long as I'm checking off these duties and criteria, I'm all right. And, and the goal of pursuing godliness for ourselves becomes more about passing the grade and feeling secure than about transformation. Um, to other people, we, we talk a certain way or act differently so people might see that we're put together. Me as a pastor, I'm hesitant sometimes to show you my worst failures or bad habits or, or how self-absorbed I can be. I'm hesitant because I want you to see me as a pastor. Uh, I want to look like somebody you can rely on to, to talk about your problems, but that's all about me putting on a, a face. Uh, Paul had a bigger vision for us. He's saying the gospel's supposed to transform you and heal you and the world around you. Uh, a lot of times I see people hang out with a group just to show on Instagram that they have friends and a social life, uh, but they don't know the group very well. Uh, and that's one way to do friendship. But what does it mean to sit down with somebody and realize that they love you for you, and you start loving them for them? Uh, and their presence is a healing balm over the secure insecurities you've kept in your heart. And then both of you start coming out of your shell, trusting each other, and you teach each other things over time. That's the kind of character growth that God has in mind when you walk with Jesus in community. He doesn't need you to perform. That, that, that means nothing. Um, he wants you to open yourself to Jesus in prayer, as we heard last week, in confession, reading his word, and sharing with people in faith so that he could start addressing those secret sins um, and your shame and your questions. And over time, as you gain that courage and you come out of your comfort zone, you realize, wow, God is a gracious God. He's a tender, he's not gonna judge me for this. And you start realizing that and you find safety. And in that safety is where character starts to blossom. You start loving yourself more, forgiving yourself more, and loving and forgiving others, having patience toward others. See, church, as a face or a checklist, character will always be toxic, because we'll never be good enough. And we won't have genuine relationships with people. I've experienced that myself. Um, but character has an invitation from God as a chance to change, addressing the real things in us so that we could respond to the real things in the world. Which brings us to the second point. 
the calling of godliness. As Judy prayed this past week, there was some tragic news about the death of a gentleman named Tyree Nichols, who was pulled over by Memphis police for reckless driving. And it was tragic, uh, not only because of his death a couple of weeks ago, but as many of you might have seen from the body cam footage, because of the, the cause of his death, uh, which was senseless and inhumane beating from several police officers. And the incident was more complicated because Tyree was a black man, uh, fallen victim to police brutality like too many others in the past. And some of us are still processing this, um, along with the, the Monterey Park shooting, trying to wrap our heads around the evil of these things. I know I am. It's an abomination in the sight of God. But the reason I bring this up here is that we as followers of Jesus are called to respond in moments like this. Uh, not just be like, oh, I guess uh, things happen again. Or, oh, we're doom scrolling and then oh, I go to work and hey, you want to hang out? No, we as, we as followers of Jesus are called to respond. And, and what does it mean to name evil and corruption and to speak against injustice? Acting in a way in our neighborhood in our communities, that's different than the oppressive cultures of the world. Th those same oppressive power place structures that have given us trauma, that, uh, uh, that have given us pain and scars in our upbringing. Um, instead of going along with it and perpetuating it, what does it mean to name what's wrong and to speak up as Christians? Ke uh, Kelly Brown Douglas is a theologian. And she talks about how the black prophetic tradition in American history was able to push against evil and help transform the character of this country for all of us. And she writes, yes, perhaps black faith is absurd. Christianity itself is absurd. There's nothing more absurd than a religion that has a cross as its central symbol. But it is because of that cross that we know that Trayvon, Jordan, Renisha, and Jonathan, as well as Emmett, George Floyd, and now Tyree, countless others, were not meant to die. It is because of the cross that we can be sure the oppressive culture will not have the last word over their lives. Um, not everyone's called to be a leader, and we can discuss that, but beyond the roles, whoever we are, Paul is saying our character our character not only matters for ourselves and not only matters for the community in here, but it matters for the world. See, diakonos, the, the Greek word for servant or deacon, was not necessarily an honorable word in Greek society at the time. Because being a servant meant that you did menial labor for somebody else. It was supposed to be a lowly position. But in the church... Being a servant like Jesus was precious because instead of being caught up in the power play of the city, you could love somebody genuinely like Jesus did. That kind of love was absurd to the world, but it was the power of God to save people. Um, so, family of God, as you do some self-reflection today, uh, thinking about what your calling is as a Christian, what role you play in this church, because these questions might come up in your heart, I want to encourage you not to get too bogged down in the details, like if you have the stats or not. Um, instead, think about your story, uh, personality, your gifts, and pray to God over them, 
asking him to reveal more about these things to you. Uh, because the truth is, he didn't give you those things. Uh, I mean, as you said, sometimes it's difficult to look back on our story. But as we sit down in silence and think about who we are, we realize he didn't give us these things just for us. He gave us these things so that we could work with him and love and heal people out in the world. Maybe you do have the gifts of leadership and teaching. Pray over that. And as you grow in character, your calling will be, become clearer in that. Maybe you're a natural servant or a peacemaker or truth teller or justice activist. Whatever it is, God's going to move in you to make meaningful, eternal change, even if it's for one person, one neighbor. That's a heavenly purpose beyond yourself. So keep asking him how you can grow in your own character, in your own way, and you'll discover your calling as you in the world and in the church. Pray about that. Lastly, uh, Elder Matt, I hope I'm doing good on time. We're about to break this record right here. The contentment of godliness. Um, Paul says in chapter 6 that some people pursue godliness as a means of gain. So uh, at that time, there were people who were actually charging money every time they spoke uh, and did stuff. So they used their platform to make a profit and godliness became a means of gain. But this was pointing to a deeper problem, which was that people were constantly dissatisfied in that society. They, they wanted more money, uh, more sex, uh, more alcohol, more power. Um, of course, none of these things were evil in themselves, but, but people kept craving for more, and they had these senseless desires. Um, and that's us sometimes, too. Um, the reason we're not able to grow in our character and I'm going to say this, it's not because God is not real or like, oh man, God doesn't show up for me. A lot of times the reason we're not able to grow in our character or locate our calling in the world is that we have these idolatrous desires keeping us back oftentimes. Um, even from the beginning with Adam and Eve, sin is the belief that something on earth is going to give me inner security forever. And that's a lie. That is a lie that you have to disbelieve. If only have, have a little bit more money or a better house. I know, you know, church is all good. You know, we, we talk about good things, but if only I have a certain reputation or a relationship, I'll be content and then we can move on uh, with things. I'll be all right in life. And, and again, none of these things are evil in themselves, but for some reason, our souls begin to obsess over them, thinking that they will save us. Uh, but always, once we get that thing, the emptiness comes back again and we crave something else. That, that's the biggest obstacle to our growth. We don't criticize our idols. We might criticize other people and everything else. We just allow our souls to submit, pulled into the waves of life, letting one craving take over the next. And the enemy loves seeing that, uh, us losing sight of the truth. Oh. So Paul introduces this idea of contentment. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment means you're not needing the next thing as much anymore. Uh, your, your soul's not craving something as much anymore. You don't have this anxiety to acquire or prove as much anymore. There's a, there's a peace in your heart. Uh, but how do you get that? Uh, well, you go back to chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, 
proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. God's mystery revealed to human beings is the person and work of Christ. That in Christ, a relationship with the eternal God is possible. He's the answer to our contentment, character, and calling. Because in your dirtiest, most shameful moment, Jesus on the cross forgives you. Um, In your most arrogant moment, Jesus on the cross humbles you. In your most difficult moment, Jesus on the cross feels pain with you. In your most helpless moment, Jesus rising again gives you strength. In your most hopeless moment, Jesus rising again has your future. And in your most godless moment, when you feel like, man, I'm acting like God is just not existing, Jesus, the Son of God, holds you with his own initiative. Family of God, do you desire uh, the contentment that the world can't give you? Or are you going to keep cycling through stuff? Uh, Ask yourself that question. And if you desire it, walk with him as closely as you can in word, prayer, and community. And in your walk with him, uh, you'll begin to discover that weird peace and he'll grow your character and calling out in the world, deacon, elder, and whatever else. I have to confess um, that for the longest time, this past, you know, Norman and I planning sermon series and Sometimes our name just gets, we assign ourselves which sermon we're going to do. And I realized I'm doing this sermon and I got shaken up a little bit. Because for the longest time, this passage was the scariest passage for me. Um, I didn't know if I was above reproach uh, as a pastor. I was pretty sure I wasn't at at times. One year, I was at a retreat uh, speaking for some teenagers. I was feeling a lot of imposter syndromes, very anxious before going up to preach. For some reason, I was reading scripture and God revealed to me another place in the Bible where that phrase above reproach shows up. And that's Colossians 1.22. It says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Church, Jesus gave his body so that he can make you like himself, and he will do it. He will accomplish in you what he asks of you. So will you just draw near, draw near to him? Um, This table... Uh, that we're about to come to together is evidence that Jesus wants you to be close. Um, No matter how far you feel like you've been, maybe you feel like your character is just completely lacking. You've lost direction in your faith. But this table, every week, Jesus says to you, I'm still here with you, and I still want you to be with me. What does his invitation mean for you today? Think about that as we partake together. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this and as often as you drink it, remember me. I'm going to ask our leaders to come uh, set up and help serve the elements now. Um...